Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Just as fall was easing into the Big Apple, Tybor Brown was born in New York City on September 23, 1969. When he was young, his family moved north to the small town of Barrington in Massachusetts. He was good at sports, baseball in particular, and so was his younger brother Willard. Both brothers attended the private school of Rudolf Steiner and the Bookshire School in Sheffield. Tybor was a pitcher and star of the team in high school. He graduated in 1988 and went on to Stetson University in Florida. Willard followed Tybor to Stetson and both would play baseball for the university. On May 24, 1992, the Berkshire Eagle headline read, Browns helped pitch Stetson to Division I tournament, and went on to say that Willard and Tybor Brown have both attracted the attention of pro scouts. Tybor is a senior left-handed power reliever who pitched 13 innings in 14 games, winning once and recording three saves. Stetson head coach Pete Dunn said he has some control problems, as his 12 walks and 13 innings may attest to, but he's 6 foot 1, 185 pound lefty with a good fastball, and that attracts the scouts. A successful performance could possibly land him with the New York Penns League, Pittsfield Mets. That would be awesome, said Tybor. I'm going to really work hard for that tryout. Tybor graduated from Stetson with a Bachelor of Science degree. He was also passionate about the outdoors, enjoyed hiking, fishing, and skiing. In 1992, he realized his baseball dream, and at 22, was drafted by the New York Yankees. He thought there was a possibility that he could play at the Wakona Park, a field he'd played on and watched many games at throughout the years and that playing there as a professional baseball player would be a dream come true. He played several seasons for the Yankees minor league teams, the Gulf Coast League, and the Oneonta Yankees. He received a lot of praise for his pitching, but his arm still had control issues and was often inconsistent, and he never made the majors. In the summer of 1996, he participated in a baseball camp for kids in Florida. Former professional baseball players gathered to teach kids from the ages of 5 to 20 how to catch, hit, and pitch. When Tybor left baseball, he headed to Utah, drawn by the state's beauty with its rugged outdoors and its spectacular skiing. He headed west with just his pickup truck and a whole lot of optimism. He didn't know anyone in Utah and didn't have a job lined up. He spent two weeks sleeping in his truck and then found part-time work in an apartment in Sandy, a small city 10 miles south of Salt Lake City. 
He was 27 years old and started a business venture, a company that recruited representatives for the pharmaceutical sales industry. Eventually, Tybor settled down into a house on East Newcastle Drive. He'd been there about a year and shared it with his black Labrador. He was outgoing and got to know a lot of his neighbors. Wendy, his neighbor behind him, would often visit daily. He had two business partners, his brother Willard, who was now living in Greensboro in North Carolina, and David Stutter, who was local and lived in Sandy. David was 35 and married with four children, a former college football star, he was six foot two and 280 pounds, and the two quickly bonded over sports. Quickly, Tybor became like an uncle to David's four children. But over time, their partnership wasn't working. In the summer of 2000, Tybor discovered unauthorized charges on his credit card and planned to talk to David about it. Wendy had met David and thought he was rude and unfriendly. In early July, Wendy recalled Tybor having an argument with David in the kitchen and that it was so loud she got up and closed her window. But at the time, she wasn't alarmed and didn't think too much of it. At the end of June, Tybor changed a lock on the office door and didn't give David a key. July 5th was a Wednesday afternoon, and Tybor and David had a long business discussion. It lasted two hours, and David felt like they'd settled things. But when he left, David retrieved his twenty-two handgun and planned to take his life. But instead, that afternoon, he went back to the office at Tybor's house. When he walked in, the phone rang. It was Willard. David answered the phone, but Willard said he didn't want to talk to him, and David felt rejected. The two brothers spoke briefly. Tybor told him he had a business meeting in Utah and that they'd talk afterwards. That was the last time Willard would talk to his brother. After he hung up the phone, David pulled out his handgun, aimed it at the back of Tybor's head, and pulled the trigger twice. Then he panicked. What had he just done? He wasn't a criminal. He didn't know what to do next. He sat in terror for two long hours. Then he wrapped his body in a blue tarp, and as he carried it out to the backyard, the plastic tarp rustled. There in the back corner stood a child's swing set, and at the foot of the slide was a sand pile. At 5 p.m. that night, it was still light out. David grabbed a shovel and dug a large hole one foot deep into the sand. A next-door neighbor noticed him digging and asked what he was doing, and he replied that he was burying a dog. He placed the tarp and body into the hole, then threw shovels of sand on top of it. As each shovel full of sand hit the tarp, it made a whooshing sound. Eventually, the tarp was covered, and the job was finished in silence. David went back into the house and removed anything with blood on it, the desk, the chair, and even the carpeting. 
He returned home at 7 p.m. and removed his dirty shoes in the garage. His wife, Sandy, noticed his white shoes were covered in sand. Over the next two days, friends and family made routine phone calls to Tybor, but he wasn't answering, which was out of character for him. His voicemail box became full, and his brother Willard contacted police and reported him missing. On Friday, concerned family members flew in from North Carolina and Vermont. Tybor, along with his dog and truck, had mysteriously disappeared. Family members talked to neighbors and friends, then expanded their search to include the hiking trails in the area. After two days, they found his truck. It was in a parking lot near Little Cottonwood Canyon. At 2 p.m., the search and rescue team were called in, but once it got dark, they were forced to call off their search. Meanwhile, police had received information from a neighbor that there might possibly be a body in Tybor's backyard. They rounded the corner into the yard, and near the swing set, noticed the corner of a blue tarp poking up from the sand. They began digging and quickly spotted denim material inside the tarp and what appeared to be a body. Tybor's family watched in horror. Police immediately stopped digging and made a call to the medical examiner's office. At 6.30 p.m., the medical examiner arrived. Police resumed digging along with members from their forensic team. The process was slow. Each step was photographed and documented. Evidence was carefully assessed. The Daily Universe reported that just before 11 p.m., a gurney was rolled out of the backyard, through the garage, and taken in a covered truck to the medical examiner's office. Investigators remained at the scene throughout the night to collect more information and to protect the crime scene. And on Monday afternoon, the medical examiner's office positively identified the exhumed body as Tybor's. Sandy police arrested David at his home. He was held on a $1 million bond. Police executed two search warrants. Detectives searched Tybor's truck and home. In his house, the Desert News reported that they found bloodstains on the office door jam and a window ledge, blood on a love seat, and blood spatter on business files. And in his truck, they found bloodstains in the truck bed. They also searched David's car, where they found blood flakes on the carpet inside the trunk. At his home in a garbage can, they found papers covered in blood. They did not recover the gun, nor did they find Tybor's black lab. On July 13th, David was charged with murder, a first-degree felony in Utah. The next day, Tybor's family released a statement. They said he was a trusting, generous, and loving young man. His energetic and positive character always brought brightness and joy to everyone he encountered. His family and many friends will cherish his memory forever. A memorial was held for 30-year-old Tybor at the historical parish church in Sheffield. The grand two-story white chapel was filled with family and friends. His mother, Tatshana, recalled sending her son money for his birthday one year 
so that he could fix a cracked windshield on his truck. But instead, he used the money to rescue an injured duck that had broken his leg. He took him to the vet and nursed him back to health and eventually released him back into the wild. Then he would joke that he always knew which duck he saved because it swam in circles. Fourteen months later, on September 5, 2001, David pled guilty to the charge of first-degree felony murder. His defense lawyer would comment that David was suffering from an undiagnosed mental illness at the time, but didn't use it as his defense. David was briefly sent to the Utah State Hospital, and his evaluation determined that he was suffering from manic depression. At David's sentencing, Tatiana looked at the face of her son's killer. The Salt Lake Tribune reported that with tears in her eyes, she broke into sobs and told him she forgave him. David stood there silent with his head bowed. Then he offered an apology, saying, There is nothing I can do to bring Tybar back. I am very, very sorry. His brother Willard turned to face David and said, You remember the day you shot him, and that is your penance. Until you can put that to rest, you live with it alone in your cell. Then he asked that he never be paroled. The judge handed him a sentence of at least five years and up to life in prison. Weeks later, the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole declared that David would spend at least 19 years behind bars before he could seek parole. At his first parole hearing in February 2020, 55-year-old David told the board that the phone call rejection had set him off, and he said, I have thought about this, and I honestly can't say what was going through my mind because the end result was so catastrophic. He went on to say that it was a very dark time, and I honestly do not know how I could let myself get to that point where I was that low. He acknowledged that Tybor did not deserve to die, that he had done nothing to deserve this, and that he was deeply sorry. But a parole board member pointed out that David had left the house then returned with a gun and waited two hours to bury him. And that looked pretty cold and calculated. And he pressed David to expand on his explanation. And David reiterated that he had not gone to his house with the intention to kill him and that he had poor coping skills at the time. As of this writing, the parole board has not made its decision on whether to grant David an early parole date. He is incarcerated at the Central Utah Correctional Facility, with his parole date listed as July 8, 2025. I wonder if he can see the Utah mountains from his cell window, the same mountains that Tybor used to hike. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20, with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Murder Teen, Kimberly Proctor. Teenage murderers are rare, 
it's even more rare for two with the same psychopathic tendencies to find each other and plan a murder together. Cruz and Cam met in fifth grade and together carried out their deadly fantasy. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>